Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Bernbaum. Today, we talk to Professor Mark Smith, Carolina Distinguished Professor of History at the University of South Carolina and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. You might be wondering why we would bring a historian on this show since we usually talk about technology. But I think it's important to keep up with the humanities. And Professor Smith specializes in a type of historical inquiry called sensory history. And although it's not his most recent book, he's well known for a book written a few years ago called Sensing the Past, Seeing, Hearing, Smelling, Tasting, and Touching History. Professor Smith was brought to my attention when I read a think piece that he wrote for a website called Singularity Hub, where he talked about the sensory revolution that we're all undergoing as a result of quarantine and social distancing. And I found it really interesting, so I thought I'd bring him on. So we talk about what sensory history is, how historical reenactment and immersive exhibits in museums relate to that. Marshall McLuhan comes up, as he's wont to do in these types of conversations. We talk about visualism and the reorientation of the senses with the rise of visual media technology. Professor Smith is a specialist in the sensory history of war and natural disaster. So that comes up, as well as sensory consumption as enabled by supermarkets. And even with all the advanced technology we have, the enduring relevance of books as conveyors of sensory experience, both in their content and in their physical form. I learned a lot of things during this conversation. One of them was that the sensory past is hopelessly estranged from us. Even if we know through writing or other means the sensations that people likely had in previous eras, we can never know what it was like to have those sensations at that time because the context around the sensation is what gives it meaning. I also learned that the well-known phrase, seeing is believing, is actually only half of the original phrase, which is from the medieval period. So to find out what the whole phrase said, keep listening. Well, it's really nice to make your acquaintance. What triggered me reaching out to you was reading your article in Singularity Hub about sensory deprivation during COVID and the change in the way that we're going to conceive of the senses going forward. Um, it was a really interesting article. As for me, I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm a technologist. I've always taken this perspective on haptics that the culture of touch is really important to what we do and the way that the way that people relate to their own senses over time throughout history as well as today determines what the value is of the technology. So I've always tried to keep up with people like you who are very thoughtful about sensory studies and sensory history. And so I was really excited to talk to you today. So thanks. Well, no, thank you. I, um, your invitation, as is often the case, when you write something comes out of the blue. Well, so backing up a bit, you wrote Sensing the Past. Maybe you could give an overview of what sensory history is and what the book showed or argued and uh, how it has been impactful. Sensing the Past was really my effort to do two things. The first was to highlight to historians that the census had a history and that in actual fact, what people have been writing, largely through eyewitness accounts, is an unwitting conceit that denies 
at least implicitly, the importance of hearing and tasting and smelling and touching. Mm. And so I was really trying to profile the other senses in addition to sight. I'm certainly not excluding sight in, in an effort to write against enlightenment conceits. And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly in, in a way, it was largely an historiographical book that talked about what work had been done and what was being done, not just by historians, but critically by cultural anthropologists such as David Howes and uh, Constance Crasson is another person who had done really pioneering work in the 1990s. And I wanted to bring that work to the fore in an effort to remind historians that not only should they attend to the census, but lots of other people had been attending to the census. I do that born of a conviction that graduate students need to recognize the antecedents of the topics that they study. Oftentimes, graduate students will sort of jump onto a topic and say, well, this is brand new, but I'm very keen on unpacking the deep past of historical writing to A, give credit where it's due, but also not to replicate work that's already been done. Mm -hmm. If we're going to move forward with our analyses, we need to understand what has been done. And if we don't, then we're simply in danger of repeating what has been done. And I have a book coming out next year that's a, a sensory manifesto that digs deeper into the past on where sensory history came from. And you can really trace it back to some very early thinkers, especially the Annales School in France, that paid a particular attention to the sensate. So what that book was, it's really trying to do two things. The first is to recover the, the historiographical sensory past and then recover the sensory historical past. So what I did, quite clumsily to be sure, was dedicate a chapter to each sense and then attempt to gesture towards what future work might look like. Mm -hmm. And some of that work was context-specific, some of it was topic-specific, and some of it was methodological. And the met methodological claims I made in that book were that we need to pay much more attention to intersensual reality, the kind of thing that you, you mentioned when you talked about the relationship between touch and sound. But also, we have to be very careful, I think, when we try to universalize the senses, both temporally and geographically. And I think the real charge for this sensory historian is to think very precisely about what senses meant to people in the times and places that they study, mm -hmm. rather than trying to import a universal idea of what smell meant at all times to all people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's dangerous and a very consumerist attitude towards the senses, because we're flirting with sensory consumption at that point. And I don't think that's terribly helpful. And I say that because the book I wrote in 2015 was on the sensory history of the Civil War, the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to do with that was talk about how the war was experienced sensorially by the people who fought it, but not by the people who reenacted. And I had nothing against historical reenactors of wars or anything. I think they provide a valuable service in many ways. But there is a distinct difference between how people understood the stench of Gettysburg and its many thousands of deaths, and how the people who, who reenact that battle every year have a different sensory appreciation of that war. 
And ethically, they probably shouldn't want to have a sensory appreciation of that war because you don't want to recreate it. So there's an ethics to this that I gestured towards in Sensing the Past that I followed up on with a very particular example of the American Civil War. Hmm. So that's what that book was trying to do. I, the, the book is not causal in any way. It did not give rise to sensory history. Lots of other people have done that before I did. Um, I started sensory history in about 2001, but uh, that was just my effort. And I, like many, many people, we don't start off as historians of the senses. Hmm. We start off as historians, in my case, of the American South and bondage and enslavement. Um, and I'm interested, I came to the United States to study the history of slavery. And over time, I became interested in the temporality of slavery, and that led me to the acoustomology of slavery, and that in turn led me to the sensory history of race. Hmm. And many, many people come to sensory history through their established channels. If, if that book has done anything, it is, I hope, alerted folks who are working in their fairly traditional fields to the sensory component of what they're working on and encourage them to expand out uh, or rather delve in, depending on your perspective. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky enough to be editor of a, of a new series on precisely that at, at Penn State University Press on perspectives in sensory history. What's interesting to me, David, is that the generational shift is beginning to reveal itself so that we publish books in that series um, by people who are fairly established scholars who started off, say, being historians of medieval poetry. And then over the, their career, they've moved into the sound of medieval France. Mm. But we've also got very genius scholars who wrote their dissertations explicitly on the senses. So there is a shift. Now, you cannot get a PhD in sensory history. Hmm. And the reason for that, I think, is quite appropriate. I don't think sensory history is a field. I think it is a habit of historical inquiry in which one attends to the senses in any context in which one is working. And people don't believe me on this. When fields are established, people become very invested in them and they want them to perpetuate. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But my ultimate hope for sensory history is that it isn't called that. Mm -hmm. What I want it to do is become so successful that it evaporates into the very fabric of historical writing. And at that point, you don't need the field. You know, it's interesting that you say historical writing at the end there, because as you were talking, I was formulating this thought about how sensory history might be carried forward and have a technological component. I mean, you mentioned that part of the inconsistency with the past that reenactment has is that the sensory stimulation is not exactly the way it should have been or not even close maybe to the way it was. You think about virtual worlds. Many years ago now at SIGGRAPH, I saw a Department of History, I think it was in Virginia or, or somewhere around you, and they had made a 3D model of ancient Rome and you were able to wander the streets. And there was something very directly sensory. It was just visual. It was satisfying. It was amazing to think that historical research could have this endpoint. Mm. Instead of being historical writing, it becomes sensory history in a more literal technological sense. Do you think that the field might become more technological? 
And not only do I think that it will be, I think that it, that it actually has. You just have to look at a different form of technology, which would be usually present in living museums. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there is a, a fairly, and this is quite old now, but this is just to give you an example of very basic technology being applied in the way that you're suggesting. Certainly not virtual reality, but nonetheless a claim to reality, right? Mm-hmm. But Jorvik, Jorvik is a Viking village in England that was discovered and reconstructed in the 1980s. And essentially, they just rebuilt everything and visitors can walk around this reconstructed Viking village. The the most popular part of that Viking village is the Viking latrine. (laughs) And a very basic form of technology has been deployed in an effort to engage people with that Viking latrine, and that is a scratch and sniff card. So the idea is that you walk through the Viking latrine and you scratch and sniff and you're experiencing the past, which I realize is a much more uh, modest form of technology than the example you gave, but it is nonetheless the application of technology to history, right? And it's beyond the written word. Yeah. So let's just unpack that a bit and see what we can do with that which will help answer your very good question. And I'm not sure that I have a very good answer to it. I think so much of the answer to your excellent question depends on the degree of immersion more than anything else, but Mm -hmm. also a recognition of what history is. But let's just talk about the Viking latrine for a moment. So when people scratch and sniff this card in an effort to access the Viking past, what are we really doing there? What are we really doing? I can tell you what we're not doing is that we're not we're not smelling like a Viking, are we? Mm-hmm. We're smelling with twenty first century nose, and that could not possibly digestibly be pleasant, could it? It wouldn't be a pleasant smell. Mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't be something that you would say, "Oh, that's lovely." Mm-hmm. It has to, in actual fact, smell rancid, and the reason why is because the past has to stink, and the past has to stink because it wasn't as deodorized as our present. Right? Yeah. The question for me is would a Viking think it stinks? And that to me is the historical access point, right? I'm interested in what people at the time said about their sensory experience, and I'm less interested in what we think about the past that they inhabited. And there's nothing wrong with that question because I do think Jorvik and all sorts of sensory museums provide an invaluable role in inspiring interest in the past. But ultimately, I do think it tells us a little bit more about us than it does about the past that we're putatively interested in. Sure. I say this because essentially it is a naked act of consumption. You're consuming the past. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just the design problem. And maybe if you were to research the specific chemicals that Vikings were smelling and then you were to use those for the sensory experience, maybe that would succumb to this problem you're talking about where we don't have the same relationship to those smells that they would have. But if you were to use other historical records to find evidence for what they thought it smelled like, or like their level of desire or aversion for certain smells, maybe we could use the analogous ones to elicit similar emotional responses in the modern nose. Yes, you've just... I think, put your finger on so many useful things. Uh, So I want to talk about the relationship between the senses and emotion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's terribly important. Historians, his sensory historians really haven't done very much with it, and they need to do more with it. 
and you're right. That's why I said at the, by way of preface to my comment, yeah, I think a lot depends on the degree of immersion. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need the historian to go back and to contextualize that and the person who has an expertise in technology to engage with that conversation. I think it's a very helpful conversation indeed. I mean, historical writing is a lower immersion mechanism, right? I mean, it's all the same stuff. Like you you read a book about history and the writer is trying to get you to have a surrogate sensory experience of what it was like for these individuals or these societies. And they're using the written word. And Mm. that's because that's what we have access to where we had access to. And so this discipline of historiography like developed and it continues under its own momentum. I guess I'm just questioning, like when you have access to higher bandwidth information transfer with advanced technology, you could take the same historical research and you could represent it as an immersive experience, or you could represent it as a book and those will have different consequences or different ways of being interpreted. But ultimately you have the same responsibilities to try to get the viewer or the, the person reading to understand the concepts that you are trying to convey. It's basically the same thing, just different mechanisms. Well, there's a lot to recommend that. I mean, I suppose the advantage from what you just said was that you wouldn't have the gauze of the historian's words and the way that the historian wants you to understand what he or she is trying to tell you, you would have more of an immediacy and more, more immediate access. You don't have an intermediary, mm. i.e. me. Mm. And that's a good thing because historians are trying to persuade you of something. I mean, this is the nature of what they do. Mm. They're not presenting truth. They're presenting an interpretation. <laughs> that's the basis of the modern historical profession, right? We're trying to argue a case. Yeah. So what you're describing is something more immediate, less jaundiced perhaps, and more authentic in a way. And there's something to be recommended for that, depending on the nature of the immersion. And I see, I see your point entirely. Let me put it this way. What, what are we trying to do with the sensory engagement with the past? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we trying to experience it as they experienced it? Is that what we're doing? Is that what that, that, that te- technological immersion would achieve, I suppose? I don't, I think, why do we do history? To understand ourselves. Okay, fine. And what do we learn about ourselves by understanding the past, right? So I often learned that things are a lot less different from the past than we <laughs> first assume. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But you also know about difference, right? I mean, this is a compare and contrast element to it. Mm-hmm. If I'm right about the immediacy question, that it gives you a more immediate access to what people sensed in the past, how they smelled it, how they touched it, how they heard it. Mm-hmm. If you strip me away and you have a technological interface, I think that's the dividend of it, as I understand you know, what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of immediacy. But do we always want that? Right? Right. I mean, do we always want that immediacy? And should we want it, I suppose? Mm-hmm. There are reasons why some subjects are not really amenable to sensory interrogation, especially if you're trying to re-experience the past. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have sensory histories of the Holocaust, and we probably shouldn't. The National Holocaust Museum is fairly sensorily overwhelming. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, sure. I think it's on purpose that, right? And and I think even if you were a scholar of the Holocaust, you wouldn't want to visit that place every day. You're right. 
it is very sensory and it is by design, but there's a threshold of sensory engagement. Yeah. So one of the proposals originally, according to a friend of mine who was on the board, you know, the debate whether or not they should include human hair mm-hmm. in the exhibit mm-hmm. and whether it should in fact be accessible. And they decided no. And the reason why is because it wasn't entirely clear to people if A, that was ethical, and B, what you're going to learn by touching it. Hmm. What is the intellectual dividend from that sensory engagement? It's a bit like the intellectual dividend from the Jorvik example. Right? What are you getting exactly? Mm-hmm. What does it give you that a more fully contextualized historical treatment can't give you? Yeah. And I think these are really pointed and valuable ethical questions about what the historical enterprise should do. As I say, you know, I work a lot on the history of the census of war. Mm-hmm. And I was at a very interesting conference a few years ago at the Imperial War Museum in London. They had a really fabulous display of, you know, how people fought on the front and how they experienced life at home. But ultimately, there's a threshold that you can't go over. So you can't reproduce mustard gas. And you probably shouldn't want to. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so your example of the Roman city, I like that a lot because it does give you access to the sounds of Rome. You, you can recreate those sounds according to the architectural acoustics of it. The level of technology you're talking about, that is recreatable, right? Mm-hmm. You, you could probably do that. I suppose my question is, is it reconsumable in the same way? Now, I can reproduce a piece of music from 1750 if I have the same instruments and the music score. Mm-hmm. But my auditory appreciation of that piece of music is not going to be the same as somebody in 1750. It's right. the same reason, David, why a tornado sounds like a freight train to us. Well, they've always been tornadoes, but they didn't always sound like freight trains. Right. And also the music that persists over time is the music that's innovative for some reason that somehow sounded fresh and new and we'll never be able to experience baroque music as sounding fresh and new that's a terrific point i think that's a really nice illustration of what i'm clumsily trying to get to history has its moment mm-hmm. and it's understood with greatest fidelity by the people who live in that moment right i'm trying to get to their understanding of their world Mm-hmm. That is not the only remit of history. There are many remits of history, but for me, that's what I do. Yeah. And so when I study the history of enslavement, I don't want to recreate it. I want to understand it. Yeah. I want to understand the experience of slavery. I can only get so far, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't want to have that recreated because, thankfully, that moment has passed. Right. Very interesting. So another thing that was in your first book, uh, Sensory History, you mentioned something in the intro that I had also read many times before, which is that we have this idea that vision became prominent and the most important central sense around the time of the printing press's invention and the enlightenment and has persisted that way ever since. When I first read that, I I looked at it as a haptics person. I'm like, yes, of course. Why is it that we are obsessed with screens and visual content and it's all over the place? Constance Klassen also writes about this. And the sense of touch is neglected. And this was a very nice, you know, well-packaged, understandable reason for that. And so I subscribed to it for a long time. I think that you in your book unpack that and say that maybe that's actually not 
as straightforward as it first seems. And you also mentioned Marshall McLuhan is one of the originators, which I, I had not known. Yeah, that's a, a really nicely framed understanding. I want to be fair to McLuhan and Walter Ong. They're often sort of blamed for this explanation of the rise of visualism, the, the reorientation of the ratio of the senses. But they were clever. I mean, I love reading Marshall McLuhan in particular. He was really describing, I think, a rhetorical position rather than an actual one. And let, let me explain what I mean by that. So McLuhan and Ong basically said the Enlightenment and all of the bookending of the Enlightenment elevated sight to the preeminent sense, the sense of truth, mm -hmm. at least intellectually and perhaps scientifically at some level. And that really helps explain our fascination with the visual, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a rhetorical positioning more than anything else, but it doesn't mean that it's not powerful or enduring because it certainly is. Even today, I mean, we're hostage to this. Seeing is believing, right? Yeah. Uh, in the court of law, you have eyewitnesses, but you dismiss hearsay. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever heard anybody being convicted on uh, on a you know olfactory basis? Well, probably in drug cases, but no, but you get my point. <laughs> but the other senses don't have the standing or gravitas of sight. And what they were trying to show is a shift. But they weren't really saying it's right, but they were describing it historically. You know, we have in the medieval period and the ancient period, the senses are very muddled. There's not even five of them. I mean, there is the common sense, which we've lost courtesy of the Enlightenment, right? The common sense being the amalgamation of all the senses, which we would today call intuition. Hmm. You know, in the ancient world, seeing wasn't always believing. Faith cometh through hearing. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever saw God, but they heard him. If you think about the ancient Christianity, communication was through the sense of smell as much as it was through hearing. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What McLuhan and Ong were really saying was like, look, why isn't it like that today, rhetorically at least? And they point to the invention of the printing press, which over many years downplayed the power of oral history in which you would tell me a story and I would repeat it. Mm -hmm. The printing press was very slow to initiate that change, incidentally, because people still read aloud from books. Mm. And silent reading was really, you know, it took a couple of centuries to kick in. So, but when silent reading kicked in, the eye was all powerful because it's the only mediator to the, to the information that you're reading. Mm. And then they talk about eye-empowering technology. So if you think about the Enlightenment's principal technological inventions, they're, they're largely, not exclusively, but they're largely eye-indexed, aren't they? They're ocular, spectacles, telescopes, microscopes, things that get you to the truth through your eye. Mm -hmm. There is no nose scope that's going to get you there. Now, there are stethoscopes beginning in the early 19th century, which can access the condition of the body. But really what those have done was downplay the medieval sensors that were considered to be very reliable indicators of a human's condition. So uh, in the medieval period, in the early modern period, doctors would lick their patients and they would smell their patients because they believed that you could identify certain conditions through taste and smell. Mm -hmm. And they even believed that smell carried contagion, right? Yeah, right. So my miasma theory is actually, I mean, we only, 
the idea that disease is carried through smell was very powerful, even in the 20th century. And even today, people still have a kind of instinctual reaction to that. Yeah. Bear in mind, germ theory didn't come about and predominate beginning in, what, the 1890s. And germs, of course, have to be visual because they're tiny and you can't see them. But actually, contagion then comes through touch, which is interesting. Then, that's Thank you. Okay, right. So now we transition from the rhetorical power of seeing to what actually happened on a day-to-day basis. And sensory historians are saying, look, you have to suspend the rhetorical positioning of the triumph of sight because if you accept that, you're simply left with eyewitnesses. If you suspend that belief, then all of a sudden you're opening a world of touch and taste and smell and sound that was incredibly important to people's everyday negotiations in life, how they lived, how they understood the world, right? Mm-hmm. And if we recognize that, if we, if we can maintain the tension between, yes, sight did become important, it did become rhetorically and scientifically important, but it did not dilute the other senses to the point of non-existence. Mm-hmm. The other senses were extremely relevant. Mm-hmm. And from your perspective, as somebody interested in hapticity, you might be interested in the original iteration of the phrase, seeing is believing. Because the original medieval iteration was seeing is believing, but feeling is the truth. Mm-hmm. And that is to say, you could only access truth through touch. You can see a tabletop, but you don't know if it's slick, if it's hard, if it's got splinters, unless you touch it. There's a tactile quality to the authenticity of the surface. I think there's also this idea that we have that the eye is more easily tricked than the sense of touch. So it's easier to create a visual illusion, an optical illusion, than it is to mislead you through the sense of touch. Part of the reason that this is such an interesting field is because of that assumption. People assume that the sense of touch can't be tricked. And so when you do it, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Actually, one of the things that fascinates me when I read about haptics in the media is that almost every single time, even if the person is very well-educated in the field of haptics, when they talk about touching a virtual object, they always put quotes around it. So they'll say haptics let you quote unquote touch a virtual object, right? Or they'll let you reach out and quote unquote touch the person on the other side of the haptic video call. Even now, the sense of touch, we assume it correlates with epistemological truth. Like if you can touch it, that's how you know what you know. That is such an interesting observation. I'm going to start with your first sentence there. That touch virtually somehow people don't think is real. This is where the historian will come in. I want to go 100 years in the future. And I bet you, given what you just told me, which I don't know anything about, but I believe you, you seem like a trustworthy person. I bet you that the definition of reality and what is real will have been reconfigured in the context of 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. People are using touching in a quotation marked way to suspend the reality of touching. But I bet you that that reality will be reconfigured, given the technology that you're describing, so that those quotation marks will drop sooner than we realize. I think so, too. But I mean, I think you could even say that the history of sensory technology is the history of technology co-opting a sense, right? We didn't have the technology to co-opt the 
audio sense for a long time. So we associated that with some kind of objectivity or reliability. And then technology came along and co-opted the ear. And now we can't really trust our ears. We can just synthesize sounds and make them sound like anything, right? We can't do that with touch. We can't make you feel anything arbitrarily. If I want to have somebody have an immersive experience of diving into a cold pool, like there's really no other way of doing that than just like throwing them in a cold mm. pool. We don't have that technological capability. So because touch hasn't been co-opted yet, it is still associated with some sort of more reliable or stable reality. But I agree with you. And I think that's why this field is so interesting right now, because we are going through this phase transition where the sense of touch is dropping its quotation marks. It's moving from something that we associate with reliability, stability, objectivity, externality, with something that is much more manipulable, unreliable, you know, even co-optable by advertisers and people with agendas and, you know, it goes on from there. Can I, can I just ask you a question? Because it's such an interesting observation and I, I don't know if there's an answer, but I take your point very seriously. So touch is more stable, it's not co-optable and it has a kind of resonant objectivity attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. Is it possible though, David, that it only becomes more powerful and more resonant at the very moment that it loses that stability. By that I mean this, I think you're entirely right that seeing isn't always believing, hearing and listening are highly unstable categories really, but that's precisely what gives them a kind of currency. That's the historian coming out in me. The history of touch is gonna change over time. So right now we're having this conversation in 2020 and we're talking about the objectivity of touch. But what happens when it is co-opted? Because it will be at some Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. It's a form of political economy that consumes its own. I mean, it's what it does. Uh, What happens when it is? Does that weaken it or does it in a way strengthen it? And is it the historian's role to say, hang on a minute, don't worry too much about its malleability. Its malleability is its beauty. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point, too. This is a good time to transition to the article for Singularity Hub. So, um, you know, we're having this conversation in 2020 during the COVID-19 lockdown. Actually, are you locked down over there in South Carolina? We have just started to open up again. I mean, I, I think the state has been pretty reasonable. I suppose one of the points about my piece is that it's I don't. I hate it when historians use the word unprecedented, but I, I had to use it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, as a historian, I was actually surprised to read that, and I do believe you, but I'm just amazed. Is there really no, what like if you had to draw the closest possible example from history? Is there anything that even comes close that we can learn from? Yeah. So the key here is understanding the scale of it, right, and the immediacy of it. I make two points. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little think piece, so you can't really get into the details. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity you've provided me to unpack this a bit more. The first point I make is that sensory changes tend to happen over a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, centuries, decades, they don't happen all at once, usually. If they do, and they have, they tend to be confined to a particular population and they tend to revert fairly quickly, mm-hmm. memory notwithstanding. And I'll talk about memory in a moment. 
So I work on the history of wars and natural disasters from a sensory perspective, right? So I've written on the history of hurricanes. I'm writing a book on the history of tsunamis, hurricanes, and earthquakes in one location at one time. Hmm. The natural disasters that I work on have very similar sensory signatures to the pandemic because it rearranges the senses, right? So sight is much less reliable in moments of extreme tension, such as war and environmental disasters. But the difference is scope and scale. A hurricane hits a particular place at a particular time. A war happens in a particular place in a particular time. Even a world war happens in a particular way at a particular time. It doesn't happen globally like this. Hmm. This is what's so unprecedented about it. And for so many people, roughly at the same time, to undergo a sensory revolution, that's what's unusual about it, David. And that's kind of my claim about it. And I'm always nervous about the term unprecedented because there are always historical antecedents. Yeah. But we do live in a particular moment. Well, and also it's this particular moment where mass media, it's amazing how how close to the uh, genesis of that capability this pandemic happened. I mean, if you think about it over historical timescales, we've only had the internet for a very short amount of time before this pandemic hit to the point that we actually can have video conversations at will ad hoc with anyone on earth. Even if this pandemic had happened 10 or 15 years earlier, the idea of most of the United States knowledge workers being able to telework, that would not even have been possible recently. I think you're exactly, I I mean, I thought about this. If this had happened, you know, 20 years ago, I think two things would have been really different. The first would have been this, what we're doing now and what millions of people are doing remotely and what I ended up doing teaching online. I am not technologically inclined. I had to figure out YouTube. Um, I had to figure out how to convert an MP3 to an MP4 and upload it. I mean, pain in the ass, right, for me. Anyway, I did it, and it was actually quite fun, I'll I'll admit. The interesting thing to me is that this is one of those cases we absolutely need an immediate history of this pandemic. We can't wait 10 years from now. I would love a timeline that is so precise based on reporting in newspapers and online what happened when. And I bet you if we looked at that, I might be wrong, But I bet you if we had that timeline with any degree of precision, this is one of those very rare examples where the news and anticipation of a virus actually outpaced the arrival of the virus. Now, I know that there are arguments that the virus was here in December or maybe November, but most people didn't have it or most people still don't have it. But the numbers weren't huge when the lockdown was instituted. So what you have is the technology outpacing the biology. Mm-hmm. I think by a couple of weeks, maybe a week, I don't know. That's not normal. With most pandemics, it hits, and then people take remedial action afterwards. They might take some anticipatory action based on news reports, but it's not, I, I guess the lead in time is not as big. So the technology, I think, is, is overtaken the biology of the thing. And was never so easy to coordinate no, the, the action no. of millions of people. One of the things that you said in the article that was interesting, too, was that you said touches the obvious sensory casualty of social distancing. 
And, you know, I, I think I used to agree with you a few weeks ago. I've been thinking about it more and reading articles online. One of the things that I've been reading about is how there has been some like cynical prediction that people spending more time with their families would lead to this truth telling about how we all can't stand each other. But that hasn't really played out. Like, actually, I've been reading that people are really relishing and enjoying the amount of time they get to spend with their family and their kids. I saw a post the other day, something about like, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, stop touching your cat. Your cat is not used to you being home all the time. You're bothering your cat. Now it's changing. Animals are getting really attached to their family being around. I just am wondering if we're not getting more interpersonal touch than we used to. And then the flip side of that is, well, we're not working, but it's like, were we really touching people when we went to work? Offices are sensory deserts, like terrible lighting. You don't touch people. The, the furniture is uncomfortable and not yours. And you have to dress differently in a way that's usually less comfortable than you are at home. So I'm just playing with that and wondering whether or not touch is really starving or whether it's actually flourishing. I think it's both. Uh-huh. It's interesting you say this because I think just after you dropped me a line to have this chat, I got a very nice email from uh, Rebecca Yanke Garcia, who's a reporter in Spain for El Mondo. Mm. And she said, I really liked your piece. She said, but I'm, I'm wondering if there aren't some tactile benefits to this. Mm. She said, can you ponder on that a bit? And so I did. And um, you're entirely right. I mean, there are tactile benefits to this. You're seeing your kids a lot more if they're not at school. You're hanging out with them. You're high-fiving more. You're playing football or whatever you do. If you had to do a percentage analysis, I mean, it's hundreds of percent more, right? right? You're getting more hugs than you got before. Right. And there's no doubt in my mind that that is true. I think what we're seeing and experiencing right now is what I would call the privatization of touch, right? Oh, yeah. It's becoming a domestic tactile quality. And it doesn't mean to say that there isn't a tactile loss. You're right that modern corporate America or academic America is not really a tactile place to be sure. I mean, you shake your students' hands sometimes, but what are some of the public tactile things you don't do now besides handshaking that you did before? Many years ago, before supermarkets, when you went in to buy food, there would be a counter between you the person serving you and the shelves behind them. Mm -hmm. And you would say, can I get that lemon? Can I have that potato? Can I have that can? When supermarkets were introduced into the United States, and there's been some good work on the sensory history of supermarkets, what that did was introduce a tactile intimacy with your acts of consumption that had only existed a long time before in the form of markets, right? Yeah. So supermarkets are extraordinary tactile environments. Would you buy an avocado without touching it? Right, no. I mean, there are many things that you want to feel the texture and the weight that you do in supermarkets all the time. You do it almost unthinkingly, but it's part of the consumer experience of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And while people certainly do still do that in supermarkets, look at the number of news stories about people who are criticized for picking up their fruit in a supermarket now and putting it back. Right. You can't put it back. That is a very powerful statement about the idea of tactility and contagion. Yeah. And also there's the social distancing has a visual element and an auditory element. You mentioned, I think, that you can't whisper at six feet. 
so people are speaking differently to each other in the street. Um, my boys have a friend who, he had a drive-by birthday party, so he was on the sidewalk outside his house. His friends were driving by and waving and honking the horn and holding up signs. And that physical proximity going away, I think, is a profound change to the way we socialize, you know, because voices are raised, faces become less defined. Even before you put a mask on them, faces are less defined. And then you put a mask on them. Or you see them through Zoom and there's all the attendant issues with video glitches and stutters. And I think your example is perfect because my kids have done this too. It's the drive-by birthday, right? Which invites the question of the relationship between sensory engagement and emotional meaning. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think that the emotional quality to touch is very much a 19th century convention. But... I also think that it gestures very much towards the sense of touch because you don't need to touch somebody physically to feel them. I can feel your pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole basis of the anti-slavery movement was visual. You would see diagrams, you'd read books talking about cruelty and the lash of the whip, and you would emotionally feel that pain. And that's what would outrage you, right? Mm. I guess my point is twofold here. A, I think you can maintain that emotional connection because there's an imaginary quality to touching because it's feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Even if that's distance, that can still exist. But there is a tremendous loss at a certain level of long-term denial of touching non-family members. Mm -hmm. I've always found America to be a very tactile country, high-fiving. It's a very American thing to do, isn't it? Patting you on the back. And that's really ironic, especially considering that Americans have, I think, a much greater sense of social distance sociologically between them. Oh, okay. There's a sense of space that you don't find in other countries necessarily. So perhaps Americans are especially well suited to social distancing. Yet, and here's the rub, they want the right to do it. And it rubs up against a political economy and a political philosophy. If they want a high five, if you tell them they can't, they want to do it even more. Yep. This really speaks to the question of how long this lasts. We're, we're opening up now. Uh, but let's say there's a second or third or fourth wave. Mm-hmm. At what point do the waves reconfigure the sensory engagement so that becomes the norm? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, but I bet you after wave six, if there would be such a thing, I suspect that people would reconfigure their sensory engagements to prevent a wave seven. Sure, over the short or midterm. But I mean, everything comes around, right? You could imagine that uh, our grandkids are uh, punk rock rebels that are all about giving hugs and high fives again because no one's done that for 20 years, you know. (laughs) I love that point. That's exactly it. So it's the Johnny Rotten of the senses. <laughs> I get it. Very good. All right. Well, so we've, we've been going a while, but I want to ask you, because actually this podcast has a lot to do with technology. I, Because I have you here and you don't have this technological background, I think it's highly valuable to hear your perspective. What do you hope for sensory technology? If you could invent the perfect sensory technology to facilitate people understanding the past and understanding your research, what would that look like? You're going to hate my answer. (laughs) You're going to hate it. As a professor and a writer, and my effort to understand 
people's experiences in the past as they lived them. And from there, you can tease out lessons and suggestions about our own present. Mm -hmm. I think the technology has already been invented. And I think the technology is the book. Mm -hmm. And I realize that that will sound extraordinarily antediluvian and probably Luddite to many people. But there is something about the written word that allows you to engage with the text, both as an empirical document and as an imaginary document. I'm not saying that technology doesn't allow that too, but it has been a very tried and tested form of interaction, learning, and teaching. I like my podcasts and I like my audio and I enjoy them a great deal. Reading is a multi-sensory experience. Uh, you're using your eyes, but you're holding that book and you're dog-earing those pages and you are thumbing that paper and you are bending that spine. And then it's a book that you read at the beach. It's a book that you read 30 years ago when you smoked cigarettes. You're going to smell it. It's something that you can pass down. It's something that is beyond its own moment of invention. It is traded off. Yeah. There is an imaginary auditory component to it because you hear your own voice. And sometimes you'll hear other voices. I think if you're looking for a multi-sensory technology, a book is not far removed from it. Yeah. I love books too. I, I love too that they persist in your environment in a way that digital files don't. Like it sits there on the shelf. And even if you don't touch it for many years, it's somehow a companion. I think that there's tremendous value in that too. Yeah, I like that. I mean, there is a sacrifice and the sacrifice is space. It takes up space. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing because that means that you value them. That's important. So they are occupying something that is in your space. Yeah. A digital file doesn't do that. There's no sacrifice. Yeah. There's no sacrifice. It's just there. And it's accessible at any point. Books require work. And I don't mean that in some kind of Protestant work ethic, but they require a labor mm -hmm. of tactility, engagement, space, investment, preservation. And precisely because, David, they're fragile in a way, precisely because they will disintegrate, you take care of them, right? There's almost a luxury in the fact that it's a physical object. It is. It is. I mean, it is. It's, it's a class distinction at a certain level, yeah. but also an aesthetic one, right? Because it's an opportunity cost choice. Awesome. We've been going a while. I know it's getting late over there. This has been a fascinating conversation for me. It's rare to get access to an intellect that is so perfectly aligned with my interests like this. So I really appreciate the time. David, you're, you're very kind and it's been my, my pleasure and privilege entirely. Your observations and questions, they're just top notch and I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks so much. And um, I will definitely be keeping track of your work and I look forward to, what is the name of the book about the natural disasters? And well, I've got two coming out. One is on emotions, the senses and experience, and it's with Cambridge University Press. It'll be out later this year. And it's our attempt. He's an historian of emotion. I'm a historian of the senses. And we're trying to reconfigure a new understanding of historical experience based on the merging of those things. And then I have a, another book coming out the year after. Uh, it's called A Sensory History Manifesto. But I'll let you know when it's out. <laughs> you know? Awesome. It's a book. It takes time. Yeah. <laughs> and do you have any uh, plugs for websites or social media that you want to 
work in at the end here? If I suddenly rattled off 15 <laughs> social media sources, it would undermine my argument entirely, wouldn't it? Uh, so, no, I actually don't. I'm not on Twitter. Sorry. I'm not on Facebook. Google Mark Smith, Professor Mark Smith. <laughs> but you know what? There are so many of me. There are so many Mark Smiths. I'm basically anonymous, and that's okay then. All right. Well, thanks so much, and uh, I hope we reconnect soon. All right, David. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebirnbaum.com. Beats by Ilya MC. Copyright 2020.